This is Werewolf the Podcast, a podcast about the role-playing game, Werewolf the Apocalypse. D20 Radio, your gamer's role. you heard of high-level games? If you're a content creator looking to make your dream a reality, you need high-level games. High-level games does layout, editing, and development support such as Kickstarter and more. Even if you're not a creator and just want to enhance your game with exciting new supplements, go to highlevelgames.ca and check out Dark New England for V20. High-level games. We want to help you level up your role-playing game. Highlevelgames.ca. Welcome to another episode of Werewolf the Podcast. I almost said a world of rage because my brain is already there. We're going to be recording an episode of the actual play soon. You're listening to this after the actual play, uh, the the third episode of a game we've been recording for two years-ish now. And the last episode went out literally a year before the third episode of that. Um, So anyone that was interested in that, like that's going to be out there again. Um, Today... I'm joined by Zachary Naldret. You may know uh, Zach from our actual play. He plays TJ. Zachary, how are you today? I'm doing all right. About to eat off a 10,000 word first draft. So Always good when you get to do that. Uh, and then say, don't hurry to get me those red lines back. Just get them whenever you, you, you whenever you can. Uh, the finals do in the 14th so I, of August. So I'm not sure how much... <laughs> By the time this airs, I, I think I might technically be able to claim it as myself as a Onyx Path uh, freelancer. Nice. Uh, I've read your writing. You've done some community content stuff out there. So folks don't know. This is my my pitch for your stuff. Um, go out there and pick up some of it. Pugmire, um, and you've got something for, um, what was the other thing? Scarlands? That's community content? So I've got uh, Pugmire, Scarlands. My latest was Scion. If the art pack com- ever comes out, I'll have They Came to Get You, Barbara, for They Came for, uh, from Beyond the Grave. Mm-hmm. And I've got a couple of vampire things on Storytellers. That's right. Yeah. So there's some cool stuff out there if those are uh, anything of interest to the listenership out there in the world. Today, we are reviewing the Werewolf Storytellers Companion for Revised. This was an intentional book. Like I could almost see someone looking at this and going, this is the cast-offs of the revised core book, but it wasn't. This was referenced in the core book. They intended to make it as a separate product. It stands as a very interesting thing because of that. So Zach, just initial thoughts. What are your initial thoughts on the book? I mean, I was surprised to find out that it was a intentionally done because a lot of it feels like it was things that were cut from the book it's short it's about 65 pages for the pdf so i'm sure the actual page count comes in somewhere around 60 ish there's definitely kind of a feel that this is something that midway through they decided to this was stuff that they had written they decided they wanted to include it but they decided to have it as a separate supplement for various reasons. Uh, yeah. There's some things that really felt like they should have been in the core book. There's some things that, okay, yes, that's, this makes sense to put it as a supplemental. 
it wouldn't shock me if it was in like first drafts that they realized, hey, this is going to be longer than we expected. And so kind of removed parts of this and said, hey, we can do that as a separate book. Because particularly in that era, you had to have books under a certain page count to get them printed by your printer. And I think the revised core book was probably right on the edge of what they could legitimately get printed uh, before they were paying extra to print extra pages. That said, we're going to start with the cover. Carrie's going to yell at me for starting at the cover and not starting at the introduction like I usually do. But I really think this is a horrible cover for a werewolf book. Uh, I don't like it. It's not, it's just weird. It has very weird uh, colors and very weird, I don't know what's going on here. Do you have any thoughts on what's going on with this cover? If you remember the 90s show uh, of Beauty and the Beast. Yes. I very much get that vibe from that top part, which has the, just that eyes and part of the face of a garu uh when i first looked at it the i didn't think that this was a pack this was the first impression it takes a moment to realize that there's three lupus there's two crinos and they're not apparently enemies it's kind of dull honestly like this is a scene that if i was playing in a game i would be like okay let's get to the next part Right. Let's move on, please. Let's like, let's do something else. Cause there's, it's the, the hint that action might be coming, but I don't, I don't know. It's weird. It's got uh, glyphs on it and bones and clearly people are in crinos. So maybe fighting's going to happen, but yeah, I don't know. It's a weird cover. So that said, this book was written by Forrest B. Marchanton and Ethan Skemp um, with uh, a reference to uh, just the uh, overall second edition authors of Andrew Bates, Phil Brucato, Lon Franson, and Devin Parker. I think that is an interesting way of, um, of crediting people. And I wonder if there weren't things that are in this that are copies of things from the core book that I didn't realize at first were copies maybe. So they were this is weird. Yeah. In the in the PDF, it is copyrighted as 1997. But this book came out in 2000. This is the revised book. I'm positive of it because I, I double checked mm-hmm. before I downloaded it. So the PDF has the wrong copyright year in it. It leads credits for the idea that this was meant to be in a different book. Uh, and and they took it out for various reasons. Yeah, um, and interesting. Um, just a note, if you're getting the PDF and you're looking, hey, is this a revised book? Technically, it came out before revised, according to the PDF, but um, it was definitely a year 2000 release. So uh, it starts off, chapter one is The Beast Blooded. And we've gotten some good art right before this that uh, references the Ratkin as a really umbral sort of scape kind of feel to it. I like it as far as werewolf art goes, just because of what sort of scene it represents. But um, the Beast-Blooded chapter is, it's about the stargazers, really, initially. Like, this is your two-page write-up for them. And then it goes into tribal weaknesses and the Pharah and kind of provides you this broad overview of this is what you absolutely need if you're a storyteller running these particular groups in this game. And I think it's, I think that to me is all really good, but I think the really valuable part of this chapter is the animals that it provides. It just provides you stats for animals. 
which is something that I don't think I would necessarily need need. But if I want them, this is a great resource for that. Zach, what are your thoughts on the first chapter? Yeah, um, I, I was originally thrown off by it that there's no introduction. There's zero. It, yeah, I don't think I've seen a... Uh, white wolf world of darkness book that has absolutely nothing even if it's just you know the plan going back to like the original plan books from 92 where they have like that blank page and it's just a quote and a short paragraph something to give you a sense of what you're getting into and i'm probably gonna go back to this a lot this is one of those things that makes me think that this was not originally planned this was things that were cut out and they just put it all together in a way that makes sense um to them so Starting with the Stargazers, there's a paragraph or two in here that absolutely threw me for a loop because reading, having read the revised Stargazers uh, tribe book, I, even then I didn't quite pick up as clearly as it lists, says it in here. The sense that you get in W20 is that the Stargazers left the Garo Nation on a philosophical issue. This says that Black Spiral Dancers took their territory, they called for help, and didn't get it from the Garo Nation. And the Beast Court said, come with us, we'll help you. Yep. That's such a different plot line than what we get in W20. Because I, I I, don't think they wanted to have this be the reason in W20. But even the, from what I've seen from either the other tribe books, even the, the Stargazers tribe books, I never got the sense that it was out of a abandonment and necessity than it was an overall philosophical these. This group aligns more with our philosophy. So that was kind of a big uh, shock there. Like even just the way, maybe it's just the way it's presented in the Sargazers tribe book. It's not the easiest tribe book to read. Um, Mm -hmm. The first character, our first person perspective on there versus the third person perspective that is presented here. And that may be the reason for the clarity here. Maybe. And I haven't read that book in ages and I will when we get to the review of it. So I can't say uh, like I can't say with a fresh like thought on what could have been happening there. I do know the end of second edition, this plot of the fall of the Shigalu. I think it's the Shigalu monastery was intentional. Like that was part of the meta plot, but it it's also odd because I don't quite know if they wanted people to go off and play games in Asia, like set in like, do they want stargazer only beast court only games or do they want people to play Garu from the Western Concordia going and saying, no, we're going to go help our Stargazer brethren? I don't quite know what the thought process there was. So one possible reasoning is presenting the Beast Courts on its own was kind of hard to grasp. Having the Stargazers come over, you have a transition. You have someone who's going through that. Mm -hmm. And the Stargazers themselves are adjusting to the new way of thinking. And that's kind of portrayed. And I believe the attack that you mentioned is the attack that is the opening fiction for the uh, Stargazers uh, tribe book and revised. Uh, It's one of the books that I read when trying to figure out what would happen with TJ. So, which is cool. And for people that haven't gotten to that point in the actual play, when TJ does choose a tribe, uh, it is a very appropriate tribe for TJ to pick. Um, Foreshadowing for anyone that listens to both the actual play and this. Um, 
I, again, let's talk about tribal weaknesses because this is, for me, tribal weaknesses were a thing from the beginning in the LARP books. So they were built into your character creation in, in LARP. They get referenced in one of the earlier player guides, I think. And then you you know get them here in the storyteller's guide, which is, I think, an odd choice. Again, maybe giving credence to the idea like that this was just cut from the core book. But how do you feel about the idea of tribal weaknesses as they're written? In general, uh, I don't have a big opposition to them coming into Werewolf from Vampire, where you have that clan weakness, you have have that in uh some of them are not particularly good yeah uh, it's the best uh it's the nicest way, of way I, I, can, I can put it um and so like some of them kind of really do make sense um some of them are a little too broad uh honest I did not intentionally use that word about broad while Bob's talking about the black theories um but Anger minus one difficulty to enter frenzy when provoked by men is kind of, I don't know, like it, it very much leans into the angry femme Nazi that Rush Limbaugh pushed on American society in the 90s. Uh, it, it definitely has that feel to it. And honestly, to go where you're going, about 60 to 70% of these tribal weaknesses strike me as, wow, that is a really like right-wing view of a particular group of people to paint them with a broad brush with. And then some of them are just bad, that some of those overlap. And then some of them are like weird. Younger brother, I, I that there, there's just really too much record keeping in figuring out, okay, what season is it well, you know, for their seasonal based it's mm -hmm. an interesting idea on paper at the table it's something that gets brushed over yeah it's gonna uh, one that really kind of stuck out to me uh, particularly coming from vampire because it is literally taken from the Malkavian clan is Silverfang Strange. It's, these are, if this is something you're using in your games, this makes the idea that people follow the Silverfangs, that people listen to them a harder sell for me. Yeah. And then, again, that may be my influence from coming from the world of Vampire, where the Malkavians were not leaders. They were not trusted. You know, there was a hard time trusting a leader you didn't know couldn't trust and if silver fangs if every single one of them has a derangement that's something that as werewolves written i think would be challenged a hell of a lot more than it is it wouldn't be just the shadow lords looking to surgically remove that it, it would be a larger push yeah I, I agree it's it's sort of several of these sort of undermine the fiction some of them support the fiction of the tribes right like the the silenced writers one of being haunted supports the fiction of the tribe having you know ghosts around them quite where quite quite regularly kind of pushing them to do things right the red talons one of of not being able to regain gnosis in cities tracks with the tribes like thing and fits the fiction right but the derangement element of the silver fang sort of fits the fiction but again presents a situation where if everybody would probably have to be aware of the mental illness spread throughout the entire tribe not that people with mental illnesses can't be leaders because we can but it certainly creates a situation where the purity focused garu nation 
that is that has that as a like uh, as weakness or anything as a flaw like that is something that they're going to get uh, violent over. Absolutely. I am agreeing with you to say that it would be odd to see them as the leaders and not be challenged frequently, particularly some of the ones that are listed amnesia in a high stress and traumatic situation. You forget who you are. Anybody who's looking to be a leader picks up on that. And in the kind of cutthroat social maneuvering way, they're gone. Yeah. And it's, it's something that when you talk to people about werewolf, they don't cons- often don't consider that. But there is that element there that it's there in the fiction. It's there in the rules. It's there in the third party description of what the garbination is like. It's yep. not the central theme like vampire, but it's there. Yep. And it's it's one of those things that, again, I can see why they chose all of these, but I don't understand why it's in the storyteller's guide. This should be in a player's guide. This is something that you're creating a character. You would want to know this if if you're a storyteller handing these out to your players after they've made their characters, that's not going to go over well if you are playing a silver fang and you're like, wait, I am I am a leader. Why am I being saddled with this uh, thing? Or why am I, uh, I, I want to play a stargazer. Why do I have this weird obsessive mind games is the way they describe it. I look at this and don't quite see this as the same level of a flaw, uh, a tribal weakness as some of the other ones, but it is what it is. And, so, and also just like uh, one thing about the Silent Strider one that you had mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So there is kind of a, the question of it requires a botch on stepping sideways, mm-hmm. which from, I, mean, I don't know if this has, was different and revised, but in, in 20th, it doesn't kind of quite make sense that that's what triggers it. Yeah, it's it's harder to botch in the 20th anniversary editions because you can't have any successes and at least one more right. to botch, right? In revised, one subtracted from all your successes, right? And you could botch if you had more ones than you had right. successes. Yeah. So slightly more common mathematically, but still like if you're lucky, you never deal with your flaw or your tribal weakness. That seems that, that seems to, again, undermine the idea that this is a role-playing challenge for you playing this drive to present um and you know we could kind of go through them all and i could point out like yeah this one this one this one is kind of just playing off the stereotypes Uh, i think we we dig in too far by doing that but uh but i i hear you i think we could dissect that section a lot um I really like getting into the next section, the Farah section, for presenting what I would consider to be just enough on each of the Farah groups, and then presenting a couple of stock NPC lists, like this NPC character chunks. I don't know how to describe these, like quick sheets, basically. Um, you get stats. That's that's is the word I'm looking for. You get just the stats that you need to run this particular NPC. As a storyteller, this is exactly what I need if I'm going to drop a Bastet into the game, basically. I don't necessarily need an entire tribe book as a storyteller to run an NPC. Well, they do mention the tribe book or the, uh, I guess the, the changing breed books uh, yep. on page 11, two that are, were out at the time, two that were going to be coming out. This does kind of have that presentation that at least in the core experience that the changing breeds are kind of designed as maybe not necessarily antagonist, but they aren't presented here as player options. 
Yeah. It's something that can be expanded on and is available because there is that reference there, uh, but there's not, none of this is kind of giving you something for the player to work off of. Whereas in the star, uh, earlier parts of Stargazers and the optional plan weaknesses presented that. Yep. And that's, again, kind of this weird thing with this book where sometimes it's player resources that you would hand to a player. And sometimes like this section, it's clearly this is a storyteller section and reads that way. Like I would never hand my player this Rokea section and be like, here's what you need to know about the Rokea that you're going to play. Like it's not enough. And it would be weird. It just wouldn't make sense. So I, I am going to for a moment, skip ahead to the third chapter um, where they present enemies and rivals and they have a little box in each section. This is what the Garu know. And I think that would work well, would have worked well in this section. Agreed. Particularly because there are some that are thought to be gone, no longer exist. And it's good to have that kind of, here's what you know unless your character unless the player's character has a specific reason to dig deeper than this you you don't know you've never heard of the word girl you don't know what a mokali is the rokia are a myth Mm -hmm. you don't swim i don't know why why you would think of that things like that i I agree with you it would be super helpful to have that particularly because the naga are presented here and they absolutely are. They should be dead. The Garu should not know anything about them. And if you're a new storyteller grabbing this book, you might not realize you should be quite as, hey, don't tell the Garu about these. Like, don't don't use these, like, obviously in any way, shape, or form. Um, it sort of, like, says that, but it needs to be a little bit stronger, I think. But we'll get to that when we get to the Naga Breed book, which I look forward to reviewing, because it's one of my favorites. I, I, the idea of having this kind of, this is what the Garu know kind of, and it makes sense when we're, and we'll probably get into it more, but it's just kind of like, otherwise you have, you have a way of separating player knowledge from character knowledge and kind of a, def, a definitive. So that's something I would have really liked to see in this particular section. Absolutely. Uh, the chapter ends with those animal stats, which I, actually I don't think we should spend any time reviewing other than, than to say, you want to know what the stats for a bison are? They're in there. Um, there's a, a nice sidebar about venom and how snake venom might work. Generally, it's not going to affect Garu, but if you have kinfolk or whatever, you've got some rules for that. Um, chapter two is about cairns and seps. And if you've listened to the Galliard's rant episode that I think that Jim and I did, I think we did one on cairns. And if we didn't, I'm just making it up. Um, but this is where a lot of that material came from. This uh, chapter gives you how the cairn is designed, how the sept is designed, how the different um different positions in a sept work how moots work that's right we did a moot episode and this is a lot of the ritual of the moot was where jim pulled um this content from this chapter is really useful and to me screams this needs to be in the core book but it isn't and that's okay Uh, and i suppose as a storyteller like building the cairn and things like that's your responsibility I would have loved, this is a more of a new school thing, but I would have loved a cairn building subsystem for players to build the cairn together so that then that could be like a storytelling option. So I've just kind of babbled about it, but Zach, what are your thoughts on chapter two? Uh, So I just wanted to just briefly comment on the art that we see before the, the official chapter begins. 
it's not often that we see characters depicted in the art that aren't the athletic jacked male or the thin model type body. And we're, we'll see it again in later parts of this book. But I just think it's kind of, I'm glad to see that in White Wolf art because it's not as very common. That's true. I just wish that, that the particular presentation of it was not in the way that this image is. It, it's not the greatest uh, representation, but the existence is at least there. So it's a I'll be much step. I'll be much more blatant. Uh, fat people don't exist in the world of darkness in 99.9% of books. My friend Terry Robinson uh, of the Mage the Podcast uh, show has commented on that several times. There is at least a depiction of someone that is overweight in, in this image. Um, so that's something. It's just, uh, it is a very visceral and uh, violent scene that they are presented in. So. Um, and there's a later piece of art that I... Honestly, I think this came, this could have been pulled from uh, the, and I'm blanking on the name of the Viking book, but. Oh, um, uh, Wolves of the Sea? Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, both pieces of art seem like they probably were intended for that at some point, if not pulled from that directly. As far as uh, actually getting into the chapter um, and kind of talking about things, it does kind, it does give some information that, yes, this is something that should be presented when, especially when we're talking about some of the Karen powers, these are uh, gives a you know sample Karen ranks and kind of to give you an idea of what this looks like. So a rank one Karen, and it'll say this is how many guard are there. This is disadvantages, advantages, but it also talks about. So it gives you an idea of kind of the size of what a Karen would be um, as far as. You know how many acres is is this Karen, which is kind of helpful to kind of get an idea of things. If you take a look at an average bond of 200 acres, and kind of get, take a look at what that actually is, it is really helpful to get an idea of size and where you can kind of put that. There's not a lot of places, cities in the world that you could probably put a rank four Karen within the city. Right. Just happens to be that it's a rank four Karen happens to work out to be exactly what the size of Central Park is, which means the entire park, not just a, not a section, just about the entire park is. Which tracks if, if you follow, you know, the Central Park story stuff that it would be a rank four Karen, that the bond extends to the edge of the entire park. Other people go in there though, and yeah. you're telling me that the Garu are okay with that? Movies I'm... shooting in Central Park, television shows, yeah. Uh, Karen's walking around with other dogs on a leash, and, and I think it's uh, I don't know if it was numbered here, mentioned here or not, but just kind of the size your average wolf territory and what your lupus characters would have known as their territory before their first change is much larger than what a rank five characters right so for kind of getting an idea of what life is like at a current for a lupus garu there is going to be, there should kind of be that feel of restlessness because this is too small of an area for to be theirs. Yeah, that's it's, a really good point. And an urban cairn for a lupus should be suffocating. Oh, it should be definitely. so limiting that they are 
you know, if you've seen wolves in zoos, they pace because they're stressed. Mm -hmm. They don't pace because they're like, hey, I want to see what it's changed over here two seconds ago. This like that is a stress behavior because they are an animal that is used to roaming extended territory. And then so as we it kind of goes into the SEPs and uh, the SEP officers, there is some wording about this is kind of going to be a suggested and not every care you go into is going to have a council of elders, a warder, a guardian, master of rights, gatekeeper, all of these various positions. Quite frankly, if we go back to what the, how many Garu are in a rank one or two Karen is, there's more positions than there are Garu that can sustain rank one, two, up to potentially rank three. Right. And this is kind of where where I think it kind of makes sense to have this as supplemental material and not in the core because it's presented more as a guide and not as if this was in the book, people would look at it or in the core book, people might look at it as it has to be this way. And by putting it in a supplemental material, it is gets across the idea that it's suggested. Mm-hmm, that's or true. This is um, if you need guidance. Um, take a look at this and use this information there is at least in my mind after kind of reading this chapter the information presented here is much more meant for a first-time storyteller who has never run a social situation uh, or a kind of a tribal or not tribal because it's a Sept, but as accept ceremonies and activities and how they behave, this gives kind of a, an outline. It's not necessarily something that is set, set in stone, but if you don't know how to run a MOOC, here is an example of how to run a MOOC. That's not to say that the way that it, at least it comes to me is that this is suggested, this is an example, this is not meant to be set in stone, this is not something that you are going to see in every MOOC. If you are at the except in the Adirondacks, it's going to play out differently than a sept outside of Yellowstone or a sept in the Black Forest in Germany or just wherever they... I think that's interesting too to note because originally Chicago and the Primogen Council and all of the things in Chicago were written from a vampire's perspective to be just the way Chicago ran. And then it got taken to be, this is how every vampire city is set up and run. And what I think is interesting is this book, at least by having it be a storyteller's specific book, pulls it away a little bit and says, this is what it could be, which I think is a use, a, a better way of putting it rather than this is the way it must be. So right. I agree with you on that. So, um, and I think it's kind of something to kind of keep together it- keep in mind is that and i kind of would want to see this part of the book more developed out as pointing out an example because a bone mark is going to be much less formal much less structured than a silver fact yep silent striders are if they have ever get enough together to have a move in one place, um, it's going to be a very different affair based on how the tribe is structured. Um, there might be a lot more time spent on stories and songs in the Fianna while Cracking Bone and Revel for Get are going to be kind of put higher up and up there. Yeah. And the 
revised tribe books do do a good job of saying this is what our moots look like and this is how we kind of do things so at least they sort of dig into that in those um the, in those books they didn't do that so much in the first edition ones but i don't think they had formalized the way moots were structured as much in those earlier books so i don't think they quite thought about hey we should call this out necessarily so we're we're just about at chapter three. I think we should go to chapter three. Um, I really like, again, this chapter art. I don't necessarily like the style, but I like everything that's being told, the story that's being told here. It Definitely some sort of ritual is happening. It could be Guy and Garu. It could not be. I don't know exactly what right is happening here, but I am intrigued to know more. Like, I'd like to hear the story behind this arc. There certainly is uh, kind of a question of really don't, not even sure what type of right this is. Is this a punishment right? Mm -hmm. Or is there something else going on? Is there a mystic right where the character is required to take it to some sort of sacrifice to, as part of right, atoning for something? Could be a lot of things. And I think that's cool. Like that, that helps me, that helps inspire me to stories. Um, it's just also weird that it's like, it's an indoor event. It, it appears to be in a museum. Yeah. It's odd. Like there's a lot of oddness to it. Like, again, like you could pull it apart and like make bunches of stories from it as a thing. Um, it, to me, I always like it when art does that. Like I can be like, I could, this is a story hook in visual form, um, which is what it does. Yeah. But it brings us to chapter three, which is rivals and enemies. And I, uh, you had mentioned this chapter before. So I'm going to kind of let you, you know, uh, drive in this chapter. Um, what's it about? So this chapter is about essentially what it is. These are the enemies of the Garden Nation or other supernaturals and how they are viewed. Each section, each, we'll say faction to make it an easy kind of thing, gives a in-person character account from a tribe member or, or from a Garu, the First one is a vampire told from Buries the Dead, a silent starter art. And it lays out information that if you play Vampire of the Masquerade, you know and can see what the flaws are and what knowledge they have. Because I have the vampire page open, I'm going to use this to uh, kind of point out like they've clumped, they've sects, um, they've put the, gar the vampires in sex or in cast is the actual wording they use, uh, which kind of matches what you would expect a Garu to think of, kind of mm -hmm. how they would be placed within Garu society. So we have the deformed, which of course they don't know the actual names. From being a vampire player, they're talking about the Nosferatu, the Sandi, and to some extent, the Gangro. Right. The, when they develop their bestial features, essentially the Garu view is that any deformity, any of corruption that is outwardly shown, obviously makes these the lowest of the low when it comes to vampires. We have the warriors next. These are the fighters. These are these are not the vampires that a 
guy should really be concerned about mm-hmm. until we get to the warlocks. We they talk about and make reference to obviously it's Tremere, but there's also kind of slight references to Asombra and to uh, Giovanni and, and so on. They can start to do things that would be problematic when you think about what their powers are as vampires. And then finally, the nobility, where it doesn't come out and say, I just said the word nobility and everybody who knows about vampire thought venture before anything else. Uh, Toreador is kind of veiled reference. They don't call any of them by clans, but they are ranked based off of what the issues and kind of what Garu would have to have a problem with. Mm-hmm. Because your Bruja, your Gangrel, your physical clans aren't shit to uh, Garu and Krynos. It makes a point to, in when talking about the nobility that they use other powers that can be effectively used and actually should be feared is the kind of inexact wording is that, you know, yeah, you should probably be scared of these guys. Yeah. Because they can do shit that you can't, that we can't contemplate. Yep. But the kind of most important part of this entire chapter is a little sidebar where it says, what Mars most Garo know vampires and has like five bullet points. And it go through this on each of the factions presented. And this is kind of something where this, if I was to take one piece of this and move it into a the core book, I would have this with every kind of antagonist presented. Antagonists in most core books are kind of written as the storyteller part. And I would like to see this in a core book, any core book. Any, any future World of Darkness books you're making, put this in uh, so you don't have people who are playing Changeling and run into some etherites and automatically know what a Black Spiral Dancer is. Right, right. So to kind of get that uh, point across. In addition to vampires, of course, we have mages. Mm-hmm. Mages are uh, kind of the, it's kind of like, what the fuck are we going to do? They have this weird magic shit. But they kind of, but they have the paradox and they don't really know why. They don't call it paradox, obviously. There's a theory that it's Gaia. Um, kind of the most, there's one kind of line at the end of the paragraph that kind of just, just as the mosquito looks at the vastness of a person and sees only the meal, the warlock looks at the world and sees only that which he desires. What I really like about this section, the mage section in particular, is the cycle between sorcerer, shaman, witch, warlock, magi, and they don't stick to a term. They're just like, meh, they're all these things. And they don't they don't quite get what they are. They don't, yeah. they're like, they're weaver-ish maybe it's this is really good for the this ambiguity about who are these people what are they doing maybe some of us know one or two of them but not really they give a they kind of portray this idea that they're all of these things mm-hmm. they're warlocks they're witches they're shamans blah, blah 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 we don't know which ones are which i couldn't tell you the difference but the kind of you know there is a difference and how to approach and how to treat um you know if you could identify a mage as a shaman versus a sorcerer and kind of portrays that the shaman is looking, their idea and their focus behind things is 
you know, using magic or medicine to heal, to soothe, to make things, make the world a better place, as opposed to a sorcerer who is being a selfish, self-centered asshole who wants, I want to do this, so I'm going to do this. So they make some distinction there, but but really like surface level distinction. And I get the sense that they're just like, eh, they're all kind of the same thing. And they maybe I'll call them a witch today. Maybe I'll call them a shaman tomorrow. Like, yeah, they're all, there's definitely a disdain that the Geru have for mages, but in it's more, it's less, we should kill them all because they're worm spawn. Like you got in the vampire section and more like, just kind of leave them alone. Cause who knows what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Hunters uh, though, hunters. Yeah, so, and then, and I just kind of wrap this up into what most Garo should know. As far as they know, hunters aren't anything, but they're, they're humans with a gun. Maybe they aren't affected by the, or can resist the delirium. Uh, there's kind of an iffy sense of this that there might be something else behind there in the, you know, the fiction, but they just don't quite know what to make of that i think too that unless it's in vampire revised i think this is the very first reference to the imbued the hunter the reckoning specific hunters that we get in all of the world of darkness again someone that is is better read in some of the more fringe books in the world of darkness may disagree with me but there is a direct now i can't find it i was just going to say where it is but i am positive there is a direct yeah imbued it says in the in that sidebar It, it calls them out and anyone that would have been reading this then would have been like i don't know what that means like why is this in quotes but when Hunter the Reckoning comes out, it would have been very clear, oh, hey, this is a reference to this new game line that's, that's out there, which is neat. So, so this book was 2001, right? Uh, 2000, I think. I think this okay. came out right at the end of 2000. So this would have come out within, because uh, Year of the Reckoning was ended with Hunter the Reckoning's being released. So the, as far as like kind of the timeline goes, this was not quite, Hunter was still a new property. Um, oh, so was, I guess, it, yeah, Hunter came released. out in 99. So Hunter came out right before this. Okay, so I'm I'm mixing the timeline up a little bit. That's okay. Yeah, it's all right. Um, I mean, what was it, like a year or two after this book comes out, they were like, ah, oh, fuck it, we're going to trash the whole line and start over. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> There's that. Um, the next section is the Restless Dead, um, which I'll let you talk about. But I like that there's a reference here to um, a Silver Fang. I think it's a Silver Fang subgroup, the Ivory Priesthood. And that's neat. Like, it's just a neat thing to, to reference. Yeah. Um, the, well, the, the description comes from Solomon Scarwound of the Ivory Priesthood, which kind of, for those with familiar with it, it gives you that kind of... Uh, uh, gives you kind of the basis of where it's coming from. It's certainly going to be a lot more recognizable to someone who is a silver fang and has gone through and looked at the various different you know, aspects of it, as opposed to someone who has briefly looked over it in, uh, you know, on the wiki and, oh, that's a thing. Okay, keep right. reading. Right. Uh, and there is kind of a, uh, a, this does kind of go back and forth talking about both the risen and wraiths, um, though their reference is the walking dead. I think they might start calling them risen after to kind of separate the idea of um, that 
which as far as why you don't have a silent strider, that's a, that's a different topic. But anyways, right. Uh, there is a kind of just feeling like they don't know really how to deal with a wraith. There's like, you know, what do you do with them? Because they don't have a body. Yeah. And how do you, how do you call something that doesn't have a body? And werewolves can't fight them the way they do regular spirits. Like they mm-hmm. can't step sideways and just smash, you know, it. the few Garu that can go into the Dark Umbra, it don't for that reason. <laughs> yeah. It's far as kind of what they deal with mm-hmm. it's, it's, it gives them yeah. these are also kind of things that Garu don't necessarily focus their efforts on because they are maybe worm tainted but they're not directly of the worm so that is one possible explanation of why there isn't that kind of depth there yeah the last i think the last section not not the last last but the last um, other splat section in here is fairies which the changelings never call themselves that so i always find it interesting when like the vampires and and the werewolves are like fairies i'm like okay like i just don't know why you'd like call them all that so it's uh, certainly a, a choice but it does kind of give the idea that even the tribes or the clans or the other various factions and the other splats that think they know what a changeling is prove themselves wrong by using the term fairies and fair folk and starts right out here you know sweet mother you're asking me now about the fair folk (laughs) and first sentence about them Um, there is kind of the idea presented here that they're not in the world the way they used to be of course we're we're getting this from fiana because of course that's that's it's a stereotypical tribe that you're going to learn from yeah 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 um, as someone of Irish descent whose last name is derived from a type of fairy, uh, it's a little bit on the nose for for Fianna. Um, if they didn't, if they reference Guinness, it is the only way they could make it kind of more um, in line with family history. Uh, but it's there's I don't know if there's really is kind of a need for that the full kind of write up on all of these. Uh, you know, with mages and vampires and what we're about to get to next with Pentex, these are things that are supposed to be common enough threats for Garu. Changelings are not supposed to be <laughs> to interact. They are supposed to be kind of a separate. So just having anything more than the, the sidebar seemed excessive. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, like you have what's presented in the core book, you just throw the sidebar on there. You don't need to go further than that. Yep. Uh, this next section, I'm gonna. I said this in our core book review episode, which Zach hasn't heard yet. But I don't. I think this would have been the appropriate place to explain what Pentex is. I think in the core book, there should never have been a reference to Pentex. Instead, there should have been a listing of worm-tainted corporations in the world. And then in this book, they're like, oh, they're all owned by this single mega corporation that then like owns all of these worm tainted things and tie it together that way would have been much better because then you're ostensibly separating it from player knowledge and storyteller knowledge a little bit. Yeah. Um, and it also gives the, it would also have given the kind of in-world idea that Pentex does not have billboards. Mm-hmm. There is not the Pentex building downtown. 
there might be the Andron oil building downtown. You're not getting uh, people together to go to the Pentex company pick a 5K fund run. Right. Uh, they're not, Pentex is not sponsoring, you know, Pride or they're not, you know, putting their name on Reno's. And it's the idea that Garu don't know what a Pentex is, never mind just the rest of world so it gives this also kind of gives and we, we get a lovely presentation from a glass walker with bullet points which is very well caping in the in world um but that's, that's i can picture this on a, a powerpoint very easily here's, a, here's here's an email with with you know dots mm-hmm. put but put dots in it <laughs> they like dots next to things Kind of thing. Um, as far as how we get uh, some information here, so there's the idea that yes, there are these kind of subsidiaries they know about. There's this is touching the surface. This is not um, you know going into the full detail. It's just kind of glazing over. It's like here are the big players. There's also we also know of these subsidiaries. Um, I do find it interesting that they make a point to date themselves by putting in a reference to a particular tobacco company that has been kind of folded into other companies or had to make changes because of, uh, you know, lawsuits because tobacco companies do things that get themselves sued. Who knew? What, what I, what's odd here uh, uh, to uh, dig in one other thought, like there's more information about Pentex in the core book than there is here. And I'm kind of confused why they wrote this, unless this was supposed to be a bit of a player. Again, this, there's this weird odds and ends where some of this seems like player facing information and some of it reads as storyteller. And you already gave me a lot more about Pentex in the core book. So I'm just, it's not bad. I'm just, it, it doesn't, I don't quite know who it's for. Yeah. Um, this entire chapter, like more than it is intended for both. Mm-hmm. Um, we, this is the, like the only chapter that gives that in-world voice, really. Right. Um, as opposed to where your first two chapters, and when we talk about the rest of them, the final chapter, we can kind of go in that as well. But the first two chapters are written as the narrator as a third person voice not as an in-world voice so just by kind of putting that in in world gets that same vibe that you get from the tribe books gives that same kind of feel and so if you're used to that if you have read a tribe book this is kind of this is gives that same vibe so i can see this being intended for both yeah um, i think if you are a player chapter three is definitely going to be the chapter that is going to be the most valuable just kind of overall because it gives the entertaining presentation from the animal characters but it, once again i'm going to come back to it this is my favorite part of the book probably is that sidebar saying what most garu know pentex yeah yeah that's super helpful i kind of wish we had little sidebars like that throughout various books because it, that would just be helpful to then read out to players and say you know this just Nikili, if you're listening and it's not too late, <laughs> put this in W5. Right. I, I know somebody's been trying to get you to put where he'll put in there, but this is much more important. Much more. So that brings us to our final chapter, which is chapter four, which is odds and ends. And it's literally a bunch of random appendixes, really. I, I would have honestly made this an appendix and just said appendixes. But this art 
Uh, I'm stopping and looking at it because you referenced it earlier. I, I agree with you that this probably came right out of something that they intended for Dark Ages or for Wolves of the Sea, which is a vampire book. It is definitely a Viking ship with a bunch of people that these werewolves have taken prisoner and are eating, maybe? There's certainly some form of conflict. Uh, <laughs> yes. And, it, and you know, it, it's not... It, the boat is tilting, so I'm kind of looking at it at an angle trying to just get different... Um, images as we have a Garu shoving someone onto someone's ass is apparently what we're looking at. Uh, and we've got you know, someone, the bottom image, the bottom part of the image is a werewolf underwater with someone and their teeth around their neck and hand covering their face. And like, that looks like a gangrel feeding. That's not like... Right. It doesn't look like a Garu doing a thing. It's interesting. This isn't bad art by any stretch. It's just very odd art. There's a lot of very odd things happening in it. Um, makes me want to uh, stop the artist. I didn't read off the artist at the beginning of this uh, episode, partly because I had weird things to say about the art in this book. Uh, no offense to any of the artists. I actually think all of your art is good, except for the cover. Um, but this one just doesn't speak to me. Like or the, This one speaks to me in weird ways. I don't know what to do with it. Um, the rest of this chapter gives us glory, uh, not glory, renown rewards, which if you're Jim Dealey, who I love you, Jim, um, you're going to love this because you're going to like uh, get your spreadsheet out and track each of your renown points like bit by bit. I I don't care. Like, this I, is not how I run games. I, I didn't do a full comparison to how it's presented in, in W20, but it is certainly an expansion uh if if you pick this up off the drive through rpg you also get the storyteller uh screen that's right which i'm going to talk about that in a moment um which i'm assuming the storyteller screen is taking directly from the core and not from this book yep. and it's a much shorter list yep it, it uh, does give you one thing that I find really useful if I was going to use Renown granularly. It provides a Renown conversion from the first edition book to revised. In first edition, uh, Renown went from hundred was hundreds of points for different things, sometimes thousands of points that you could get. They completely overhauled that system in second edition and they um, revised it again slightly in revised. And it's super useful if, again, you are the type of nitpicky storyteller that's counting renown points like this. That's not how I run games, as as Zach knows, but, you know. No, not at all. But it's there. If that's your thing, it's there. Um, it gives you combat stuff. It gives you weapon stuff. It gives you the most valuable thing in this book, from my perspective, a timeline. Sidebars before were great. Having a timeline is really helpful for, like, here are key important things that your players might have stories about. That I find really, really useful. And I wish we had gotten this in the core book. Like this should be a first or second page core book thing to me of a timeline of key events. Um, Cause I like it, but that's kind of the book. What are your thoughts on that last chapter? I, I have no more comments on the renowned chart than uh, if you have W20, you just, just use that. Uh, right. it, if you really need to get nitpicky down in into the weeds with Renown, you can. Um, you can also just like say, yeah, I did this good thing. And if you can make people believe it, it has the same effect. Um, 
we we then go into underwater combat. Um, not really how sure how much this is going to come up in your typical werewolf game. Right. But um, but I could see this being in a storyteller book like, oh, hey, here's like yeah. some extra rules we, we've created. Maybe you'll find it useful. Um, and I, I really think that section could be wrapped up by just saying, saying like, go get World of Darkness, uh, Blood Dim Tides. Right. Like the sentence ends on. Right. That section ends on. If there was ever a section that is meant for players in this storyteller companion, <laughs> it's this weapon section. Right. Um, it gives, and I and I, I love it. I, I wish more books would have this. Um, I don't know that it's necessary for um, to be put into a storyteller only section. I don't, uh, I, only because it's 90s White Wolf is the largest write-up, the Katana. Um, right. But it, it it kind of, you know, we have, of course, we have a list of weapons and weapons are presented in every book. Uh, this kind of gives a little bit more meaning as to this is why you're never going to have a Katana, a silver Katana. Right. It tells you, like, yeah, no, you can't do that with silver. Uh, just like straight up, if, if you're trying to do that, um, you know, go buy a new trench coat or something. Um, the line your trench coat with silver and then use it as a club. <laughs> uh, you put the silver on the outside of, of right. the trench coat and then you put another trench coat over it. So then when it comes time to battle, you just take off your first trench coat and you hug people. Um, make a note for TJ. <laughs> um, we get kind of uh, uh, more kind of, you know, what exactly is a knife versus a sword versus a blah, 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 blah. Um, and we get an idea of why a Garu might use this thing, which you know, is kind of helpful for a player to look at. It tells you, yeah, you're not going to have a, fat, a fetish club because no spirit is getting into that thing. Right, right. It's like, yeah, no, it's a stick. You need to, you need something better than a stick to to for me to to be in there. Uh, still, never have necessarily been a fan of the kind of shifting difficulty for weapon use. Uh, I, I tend not to do that much in my games either. Like we've occasionally done it in a War of Rage because players have a thing and they know, hey, this is the difficulty of my thing, so let me use that. But like. To me, weapon difficulty should be diff six. Like, I don't know why. I, get, I sort of get it. Like, I sort of get why a club is easier to use. But is it like you're, I don't know. Yeah, your, no. your die rolls should determine how successful you are at wielding a club or a sword or whatever. I mean, I, I, I've held a fake sword and I've held a fake katana. I can tell you that they're not at all similar to use. Um, and my mother's friend who has a black belt and has trained a katana's would say yeah no this is nothing like using a sword it's completely different it has one blade level there's there's really not a reason why it should have the same difficulty as a sword um, but at the same time like you look at a knife and like okay it just because it seems like you can just pick up a knife and just stab somebody it really is not that easy right exactly <laughs> uh i don't know yeah. As far as the history part of this, I find this it, it it certainly is useful for a storyteller, if especially if you want to incorporate some of these elements into your game. It's there are it depends on how much you want that as part of that. Uh, 
as far as Garu being a oral tradition of storytelling, having to knowing that the it was 1989, or sorry, it was 1589 that the Crotone sacrificed themselves to banish the eater of souls from the physical world. We don't need a year. If you're a red talon, you're not going to know what that means when they, and it's in the tribe book. I'm not just making fun of them. They literally say, we don't know what years are. We don't, we don't count things that way. What the fuck is a 1589? Right. Um, so they're the exact you know numbers we do we really need to know that it was 1986 that pentex moved into brazil yes um it had (laughs) the the exact year um see for me yes i think we need to know these exact things there is there are a couple of approximate years on here for for like early history things but like 1521 the shadow lords should know when they basically like screwed themselves and bat is going to follow them around for all of time and try and kill them if they know it is 1580 if they know it's 1521 then they are obviously keeping detailed records this is not information that's being passed down <laughs> around the campfire at the move that's years can be remembered you know it's the i, I don't know I, i'm with you I, there is a bit of like hey There's, this is not how an oral culture yeah. you know um, carries down we we shouldn't know the exact year that iron riders started talking referring to themselves as glass walkers think you know um there's certainly kind of some very kind of specific details um in here that can make for great use of story hooks um if that is what you want in your game if you want to if you really need to know that it was approximately 1800 bc when the silent striders were driven out of egypt Right. I'm not sure why you need to know exactly when that was, unless there's a historical moment in Egyptian history I can't think of off the top of my head. Possible. In 1800 BC that they're referencing. Um, You know, cool. If you're that much of an Egyptian scholar, you you don't need this book to tell you what that was. (laughs) Right. Uh, So, yeah. The the one other thing I want to mention real quick before we kind of wrap up this review is that um, this does come with a screen. So if you download this from Drive Through RPG, you do get the Storyteller's Companion screen as well. Um, the art for this is the art they end up using on the tribe book covers. Um, each of the individual um, characters that they put on those books. I like the art. I think it's really evocative. Really good art. Like, I really like this a lot. It, um, as a screen, gives you weapons and armor and uh, a delirium chart, uh, feats of strength, renown, basic renown, um, like how much renown you need to rank up, um, some basic difficulties uh, on rage rolls and some other things, and health levels. Um, it gives you the litany, the like uh, real quick litany, I think. That would be really helpful, an experience chart and sample renown awards, which again, you're right. I think those came from um, the core book. This is a solid screen. I would definitely use this. Uh, I have, I own a physical copy of it, have owned a physical copy of it for years. I've never used it, but in theory, if I used a screen, I would use this um, at my table. Uh, I just don't like having that separation between me and my players. So I always feel weird having one up, but I, I could see using it. Um, any brief thoughts on the screen itself? Um, so it, it gives the ability to kind of dig in deep. If you really want to get into how the reaction is going to be for Delirium, if you want to plan out your NPCs, 
with each having a specific willpower, it's there for you. Yep. Uh, and it gives you approximately 2% of the world population is not going to forget or rationalize. Uh, so those little percentages are, are nice. Um, how useful um, that is, or if, if it's a lot easier to just say everybody cowers in fear or everybody you know, runs off screaming in the middle of the night. That's up to you as a storyteller. If, if I'm storytelling it, I'm definitely just going to have them have it run off. If I'm using Glyrian Chart as a storyteller in a different game, I'm certainly not going to go through each character's um, I'm going to definitely use this as you ran off, you black out, you don't know, you, it, you look at your watch, it's like 10 minutes later, you're sweaty, you're out of breath, you, you seem fine, you, you're not hurt or anything, not, don't really remember, you were talking to some guy in an alley, I don't know why you're over here. Yeah, That's it. Um, we have our you know, a dice pool for feats of strength, which, uh, which is always you know, a fun little thing to to look to see how much shit can you do in cryos really uh, right which it seems much more appropriate for werewolf than it does in any other other books um because you can't get nearly past you know certain numbers unless you're yep. doing an elder game or vampire or doing some just downright paradoxical shit in mage legit so these two things the screen and the book how many silver trench coats out of 10 would you give the combination? I'm taking a silver trench coat off for the <laughs> fact that uh, the animals do not have social stats. If you are a pet owner, you know damn well that you, whether or not your animal has charisma and you know the difference between a pretty dog and an ugly dog. Uh, they might have shit manipulation. <laughs> My dog who will get up and trick me to thinking she has to go out to the bathroom so that she can take my spot on the bed has manipulation don't fall for it um so i, I don't know it's nothing in this is kind is necessary to have outside of the core experience these are all supplements material all enhances so if you are interested in getting the extra information it's going to work for you. Um, I do think that, you know, I it's getting at least five just for chapter, the existence of chapter four. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sorry, chapter three, the rivals and enemies. That's if I could take one thing out of this book and put it in every other World of Darkness book, as I said, it's the what most Garu knows, except uh, I could, I would definitely like to see that expanded because there's, you know, shit that your average Bonar is not going to know the full detail of the houses of the Silver Fangs. Yep. And the Silver Fang who stands in front of you talking about how I am from this house, blah, blah, blah. And then you go, uh-huh. Should I tell him I don't know that that if that I, that's a good thing or not? Um, is it just him bullshitting or is that actually something? Is it, nice to meet you. <laughs> you <know>? Right. Um, <laughs> My lord. <laughs> Sure. Uh, you know, I have a house too. It's it's uh, the, the brick one down the block. Um, <laughs> I, I am stink feather of house brick. <laughs> um, I, I think it would be kind of interesting to have that knowledge throughout the other, just throughout, uh, even within the tribes. 
So that yeah. would be more than the one line sentence that we get in every kind of wrap right up. Um, and, but also having that kind of out of world, the out of world angle when a lot of the information is always presented in world. The, some of the, uh, chapter one's full, the full page art chapter one is gonna be my, my favorite piece of it. There are some pieces throughout the book that are kind of hit or miss and some that just raise questions. Uh, in chapter one, there's one on page nine where it looks, we've got a bunch in what I'm gonna say is lupus, um, possibly in this attacking man. But there's a woman there who is, can't really tell what form she's supposed to be in. Maybe glabro, but that it's a very crinosy glabro. It's a very crinosy glabro. It's um, if this was a couple pages later when they're talking about the pharaoh, you could almost say that she's in a set. Um, if she's in Krinos, that's the first time I think I've ever seen a Krinos that is distinguishable male from female. Right. Um, so it's why I think so it's Glabro. But yeah. like, but then but, like it as someone who's like favorite piece of art in all of uh, the white the where where books is a, a black fairy in Glabro that appears in. The it appears throughout. I believe it's in the second uh, edition core book, but it, mm-hmm. it's definitely in the twentieth um, edition, where she's she's not furry, she's not hairy, but she's definitely you know jacked and muscular. And that's don't ask me why. That's one of my favorites. She's always been. Um, overall, that because I don't know what this book retailed for when it came out. So I don't know. Yeah, if they were you know when it's four ninety nine. 374 as part of the Christmas in July, um, it, it's worth picking it up. Um, I'm not sure what the, how they would deliver a screen if you went with the print on demand option, um, just because the screen isn't formatted the way that the screens are, like the screen for W20 and Mage is, and several others, is actually formatted like a screen. Um, right. So I don't know, it's got information that I don't know. It's it's kind of useful. It's kind of it, there's. I wish this book were longer. In in some instances, um, I wish they kind of went into kind of things some more. And that's um, once again the reason why it's not something that was designed originally. The, when they started writing the core book, they weren't also planning on writing a companion. They took piece, they took the core book and looked and said, this is too long. This may be, you know, we can cut this, this, and this. We'll throw it in a command companion. We can reference that later. Um, and it's clear that they cut the, they originally kind of cut, cut these parts out and could have expanded on them to make this a larger supplement than it was. And they didn't. Would I have bought this on the shelves for $12.99 back in 2001? I don't think so. Um, it's still got some good information for running a W20 game. If you're running any edition and you don't have a companion and you don't want to buy the much more expensive storyteller's book at this one. Fair enough. So I, th- I think your math that I'm working through was probably about a five, maybe a four trench coats out of 10 for this. Yeah. It's a, I'll, I'll go with a five trench coats out of 10. This is not a, it's worth picking up if you are looking to kind of dip your toes in. So if you have prior knowledge, uh, if you have a storyteller's companion, storyteller's guide, 
or handbook from another edition. You don't need to replace that with the revised. This is going to give you enough information if you have been a storyteller before, but never have been a storyteller for very Sure. I'm probably in this. I, you're saying all things that I don't disagree with. Um, I'd probably give this about four, four and a half, maybe five at most silver trench coats out of 10. Uh, I actually don't think it's particularly useful unless you're running revised specifically and you're like, I need the stargazers information for revised or I want the animal stats. I don't think we get animal stats as detailed as this in W20, for example, maybe in one of the supplements that I'm not thinking of, but like. It, it's a, you do if you uh, consider mage gods and monsters a something <laughs> for twentieth. Um, That's true. It all in all, there are some useful bits in this, but this would be a book that I would borrow from a friend and pull those bits and uh, and then be like, all right, cool, thanks. I've got the things that I need to know from this. Uh, maybe write down some notes and call it good. But it's not a book that I tell you to go out and buy uh, by any stretch, but. From a werewolf history standpoint, I think it's useful to like see this and see how it got developed. Um, I did say at the beginning that I thought they had intentionally made this. And then Zach convinced me that probably they didn't, even though I was trying to give them the benefit of the doubt that it was intentional. Um, we'll see. Anyway, if you're not a patron yet, go become a patron now. Uh, for only a dollar, you can join our Discord and hang out with us. Um, if you would like to get a higher level, we have a, a level where I produce an adventure, uh, at least one per month, sometimes more, um, for you to run in your own games. Um, there are other tiers of interest if you're interested in doing that. Um, worst case scenario, just go out and leave a review on iTunes or something like that. Those are always awesome. And until we get an answer to the question of when will you rage, I will talk to you again next time.